welcome to Because and Effect, a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation, where we talk to people about the causes they care about and the effect that it's had on their lives. My name is Nolan Bicknell. Rick Frost became the CEO of the Winnipeg Foundation back in 1997. Now, 23 years later, he is leading the organization into its monumental 100th year. Last year, in 2019, the Winnipeg Foundation distributed over $57.5 million to the community, thanks in large part to Rick's vision and leadership. Now dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic means Rick's team is responding to community need in an unprecedented fashion, while practicing social distancing and working primarily from home. There's going to be incredible numbers of lessons to be learned here, right? I mean, mm-hmm. who did what right and why did it go so differently in one part and another and and, um, and, and and all those kinds of things. So there'll be lots and lots of future analysis built around this that'll teach everybody how do we react in these circumstances? Because this is a this is history in the making. For sure, this is history, history in the making. I sat down with Rick over video chat to talk about COVID-19 and the foundation's response, how the world has changed and will continue to change, and what plans and strategies are in place moving forward. Because the values we learn from history can shape the future well-being of our city. Rick Frost, thank you for joining us on the Because and Effect podcast. It's kind of a weird situation, but thank you for uh, for being here today. Well, certainly it's a weird situation. I agree with that, Nolan. So from, you're from your home in Winnipeg right now. I guess my first question before we kind of get into the COVID stuff and get into the foundation stuff is how are you doing? How's the family doing? And how's everyone kind of handling this new uh, this new world that we've found ourselves in? Well, it's certainly a different world. It's crazy times for sure. Very challenging. Um, when the prime minister said it's time for all Canadians to come home, my wife was still down in Arizona. So our, uh, our first challenge was to get her home. And she was in a, you know, we, we, in a, in a place there that's you know, safe. We had friends. Uh, weather's great. Uh, you're not particularly enthusiastic about coming home. So I think the first uh, few days there, we had to convince her that it was a good idea to come home and, and, and that sort of thing. And I'm sure that there were lots of people in that circumstance. And I know there's still people outside of Canada trying to get back in. Um, so in terms of family, once we got everybody home, because my kids were going a little bit, uh, getting a little bit excited about the fact that their, their mother wasn't back in Canada. So by the time we got all that settled, that's going back a couple of weeks now. But mm-hmm. after that, it's settled down. Yeah, I mean... I was remembering back to when you first got back to the office and, and Raquel and I were kind of joking around that you were taking this really seriously. And it was before kind of every, anyone knew how serious it was. You were kind of running around the office, in and out of meetings, in and out of phone calls. I don't know who you were talking to, but you could, <laughs> I, I could see that you took this way seriously, way early. So like how, when did you realize that this was going to be such a drastic uh, change to our, to our yeah. world? I don't know if I was way early. I think I was maybe two or three days early in some respects. Um, you know, I, I was, I'd been down in Arizona in the first week of March and you're able to watch the TV reports and, you know, and, and American news was not particularly alarmist about the United States at that point or North America, but they were certainly showing what's going on in Italy um, and what was happening in China and whatever. So I had a chance to sort of see what was happening, probably watch more media reports on vacation than I would normally be watching at home. Um, so I was aware of it for sure. And by the time I got home on, on March the 10th, 
um, you're right. I was I was pretty much convinced that this was more serious, uh, more serious situation. That first week, there were a few things that happened. I visited Main Street Project, which is a shelter, as you know, downtown for the homeless, and I spent two hours there on a completely different mission. I just happened to be on a visit, but it was pretty apparent that you know any kind of a pandemic type situation going through there was going to be a huge challenge and sort of remind you of what's happening on the front lines in Winnipeg in the best of times, never mind the worst of times. <clears throat> and um, at that time, you might also remember we were looking at a staff meeting that was being planned for the following week. And we were talking about some of the timing and some of the topics and everything like that. And going through the back of my mind, I'm saying, you know, are, am I really going to bring the entire staff of the Winnipeg Foundation into one room at one time? Um, and so there were things like that, I guess, that, that sort of, um, that had me really thinking um, about, about uh, how are we going to react. And, and I think as a result of that, we were maybe a day or two ahead. I don't say way ahead, but certainly I think we're, at least at that point, maybe a day ahead, a day or two ahead of the thinking of most people. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I know how the com, I'm as a part of the communications team, I know how we're kind of adjusting, but how is, how is the, how are the rest of the teams handling things? How are you handling things? And, and, and like, how has this adjustment been for you professionally? Um, well, obviously we're all operating remotely and, and so we're all used to talking to one another in the office and, and, and that sort of thing. So I think it's, um, there's a lot of adjustments going on. We're all learning how to use Zoom or Teams or these various um, systems. And um, I don't have the same supports that I'm used to. I, you know, I've had a long career. and I'm used to having people around me who are making sure that everything is sort of organized for me and whatever. And I don't have any of that support. So suddenly that's a big change. Um, maybe on the flip side, it's kind of interesting that I'm sitting in on meetings and hearing people um, right on the front lines of our organization and, and hearing what they're doing and how they're sort of coping in there and how they're getting their jobs done. And I'm probably par um, uh, being part of connected into conversations that I would not normally be in. Um, and um, so that that's kind of interesting and, and kind of different and a little bit insightful. You know, sometimes people say things they forget I'm there too. <laughs> so, so that's funny. Uh, but nonetheless, it's fun. Yeah, it's okay. It's definitely different for sure. I mean, you've been, is this 21 years or 20, 20 years at the foundation? Uh, yeah, 22 years. Yeah. 22 yeah. years. Yeah. So yeah. has there ever been anything that's been close to this, like 2008 maybe, or like what, what's, has there any ever been anything you can recall that's been similar to this experience? No, not really. I think this is completely unique. Um, you know, we're lucky at the foundation, we've got strong policies in place. And I think they've been tested, as you mentioned, 2008, they're, they're certainly they've been, they've been tested uh, before. And they're going to be tested, obviously, now, but I'm, I'm feeling pretty comfortable that our policy base is strong. Thank goodness for the endowments that the foundation has um, been blessed to receive over the last 99 years. I mean, people who are, you know, those early gifts going back into the 20s, 30s, 40s, they're there, they're giving us the capacity to respond to this thing. So, um, you know, we can be very grateful to the donors. We always say thank you to the donors, but you can't say that enough. But there's many of those donors, obviously, who've, who've, who are not with us anymore. And, and, and we're very grateful, obviously, um, to them. Our assets, um, we're in a pretty diverse portfolio. So while obviously we've, we've taken a hit as all investors will take a, a hit in this thing, um, 
you know, it is an event. And so um, we're going to get through it. I mean, I, I don't think there's any, you know, it's going to take 10 weeks maybe uh, before we start to see any kind of light at the end of the tunnel. It's still every day since I've been home from Arizona, every day it, the news seems to get worse. And, um, and so that's challenging. But on the other hand, in the back of my mind, I know very much that we're going to get through this uh, because it is an event. So, um, I, but I don't think there's been anything like it. I can't say I've had other experiences like this um, at all, ever. No kidding. So, I mean, we can kind of talk about the bad news and potentially getting worse news, but what are you hearing from the grants team and from, from uh, donor services and from different organizations, maybe on the front lines, you mentioned Main Street Project. What are you, what are you hearing when it comes to Winnipeg and how uh, collectively the community is, is handling this situation? Yeah. Well, the grants team is giving me a daily report. Um, so they're giving me some updates that uh, gives me a sense of, you know, what they're hearing on the front line. Of course, as you say, I'm on phone calls all the time and that sort of thing. Um, certainly food security um, is an issue. Um, you're hearing about it in different, in, in different ways uh, from organizations that provide individual meals, obviously harvest, uh, but even in the hospital, you know, as you start to close down places where the staff can go out for out because the hospital's closed, you can't get outside. So there, what's happening in the actual cafeterias in in the hospitals, and you start hearing all these different stories. So food security is clearly an issue, a challenge. The homeless, I've already mentioned Main Street Project, but I think the homeless, um, particularly vulnerable population, they live close together. Um, you know, if you think on a, forget outside COVID-19, just get into normal night. In Winnipeg, we've got shelters where a lot of people are sleeping in very confined spaces. And and um, and so this is just exaggerating that, that situation. Um, obviously families, kids, uh, you know, there's family violence and how, and all those kinds of stories you hear a little bit about and how we mitigate that in, in these stressful times. So I think that those are the, probably the key things that I'm hearing. Um, obviously, there's organizations that wish we would jump in, you know, more quickly with response grants, but our focus is really being on the most vulnerable. Um, that's where the grants team and I've said we're going we're gonna to focus on the, the people who are least advantaged. Um, and so you're not focusing on others by definition, but it is bringing in new things. Like we did a whole series of grants with the United Way. I just, before I talked to you, I just got off the um, e emails with uh, Connie Walker, who runs the United Way, talking about other grants that we might do together. Um, so I think it's opening new doors for working together from, from that perspective. Uh, so I think those are, those are probably good things about the experience, but um, right now, my view is that we're sort of bridging, um, bridging between government getting there. Uh, the government's coming for sure. I mean, we can see the mobilizing, they're do but it takes time to get things through the system and get everything running. So our job right now is bridging um, that gap. And then, and then once we know the government's there, it's going to be much more filling the gaps, mm. looking for spots that they haven't gotten to yet and trying to get dollars into those spots. So there's strategy, I think, around how we're approaching this, um, trying to be as effective as we can. Um, and again, all we can do is say, thank goodness for the donors who put us in this position to be able to respond. 
for sure. And obviously things are changing every day. So we're learning new things every day. We're understanding the situation a little bit better every day, but do you kind of have an overarching uh, philosophy or the way that the foundation is approaching this whole thing? Obviously we're not going to be too drastic too quickly. We have to kind of be steady as she goes, but what's the overarching ideas and and strategy that, that the foundation is taking right now? I think we've got to make some temporary shifts for sure. And I, and I've spoken, you've, you've, you've read some of the stuff I've written already, but um, clearly the foundation I think was putting greater emphasis on multi-year grants for an easy example. We're trying to give organizations some sense of security about their funding for the next two or three years. And so we're putting emphasis on that. In this circumstance, you got to completely shift gears and go back, hold it. Right now we've got to talk about immediate response. And so I think, the idea of thinking about three-year grants um, versus what we're doing right now, it, it, you know, that shifts. Uh, that's one example. The foundation, my 22 years there, I've told the staff repeatedly, our core business is building endowments. And we have always done some flow through. People give us money and try to, some of our donors want to steer it to some project. But we were, I won't say reluctant, but it was sort of a, almost grudging kind of thing. Okay, now we're really an endowment builder, but we will do this kind of work. Um, and I have sent the message clearly to our to our team's uh, finance and donor engagement and whatever. Listen, if any donor wants to do anything, getting money through us into the community right now, it doesn't matter how, facilitate it, make it happen. So that's a big shift from saying we're basically an endowment builder to saying, hold it, in this time frame, we are going to be basically flow through and we got to move everything we can through. So I think that's a a pretty big shift. Um, Sponsorships, you know, the Winnipeg Foundation wasn't one. I don't think you wouldn't say we're a huge sponsorship type organization. You went to gala or dinners or various events. You know, you didn't see Winnipeg Foundation logos all over the place. That's not what we've typically done. But when you think about a sponsorship, to an organization, it's really flowing discretionary dollars into that organization. That's effectively what you're doing. And so I see us beefing up our sponsorship activity in a big way, not because we're trying to put our logo on things, but because it's a way of getting money into organizations that are going to be, you know, 10 weeks from now, really trying to figure out how do we get our fundraising activities going again? And how do we start to build our relationships and sort of come out of this thing? I think the foundation is going to have have to shift gears in that uh, sense. But overall, the foundation's got a strong policy base. Are we going to make some philosophical shifts? I'd say yes, temporarily, probably for the next year, maybe 18 months. Um, You know, we're a resilient organization, um, and we will make shifts for sure. How how many of those shifts do you think are going to be permanent? And how, like, it's, it's a, I'm having a tough time wondering how much of this change is going to be uh, rippling through society, you know, like, and how much is going to be permanent, how different are things going to be? So have you given it much thought about how much the foundation is going to shift uh, moving forward? Or is it going to be kind of business as usual back when things kind of settle down? Or have you, have you given that much thought? I have um, not given it a lot, but I think, you know, we say, we say our, our words are for good forever. That's the tagline we use everywhere. And um I think we're going to stay in the forever business. I mean, I think the foundation already has sort of demonstrated the value of having this capacity in your community, ready to respond with, you know, we're not relying on fundraising. We've got a, we've got a, a fairly significant capital base that allows us to act um, without um, 
having to worry about how we're going to how we're going to find the money to do this, right? Mm -hmm. So, I, I think again, thank goodness for all those past donors who've given us that capacity. Um, so, but I'm sure there's going to be changes. I mean, even you think about remote working. I mean, can you imagine going back to the work? Mm -hmm. Me and being a CEO saying, "Well, hold on, you know, we can't let anybody work from home. Everybody's got to be in the office seven, you know, five days a week, and da da da." And, and we're going to demonstrate in the next in this period of a couple of months that all kinds of work that we're doing is being done from home and and we're keeping our system running in March on March 15th which was right at the time we're closing our office we put three million dollars out into the community and then last Friday on March the 30th I guess it was 28 29 something like that we put 3.7 million so we got actually 6.7 million dollars into the community in the last two weeks three weeks um, that's a lot of money that we're doing remotely, you know, without our office being open. So it's just, I think, I think there's some things that are going to be permanent changes, but I can't predict yet what, what they'll be. Well, a lot of the, not only confusion, but the maybe criticism of the endowment model is that it's too, you know, why wouldn't you spend that money right now if you had it, right? But this situation is proving that the fact that we have had that model for 99 years means we are able to now be nimble and able to be agile and, and actually put that much money out. So it's kind of a, it's a weird balance that you have to mix in, yeah. in times like these, but it's, I think we're, we're trying to find that balance and it seems to be working out okay right now. Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that that's the, that's the message. You know, it's, it's for good. So we've got to obviously put lots of emphasis on helping the community. We only exist to serve the community. That's our only reason for being here. Um, but having said that, we are forever as well. So we've, we've got to keep those things in mind. So what would you say to donors and just the general population of Winnipeg or Canada, if you could have a message of what we can do, all do to help or to collectively come together to, to flatten that curve even more or, you know, just make things better for everyone uh, across Canada? Well, I think, um, I, I, I would start with obviously following the health directions. I mean, there's no question. Social isolation is the solution here. We can see it. Um, I was outside yesterday for the first time in a long time. I went out to the grocery store and I hadn't been out for a long time. Um, and I was surprised at the number of people who are still out there. So I hope we're taking it seriously enough. But, you know, it makes you kind of nervous when you see as many people out there and you see how serious it is in other parts of the world. Um, I, hope, I, hope that, um, I hope that our social distancing strategies are strict enough. Um, it, it gives you pause to think when you're, when you're out there and you see that many people around. But certainly following those instructions are, are the key that everybody in any kind of position who has any understanding of what's going on, they're all saying the same thing. Um, so I think I would just say the same thing, follow the instructions. Um, but I guess when I go back to our own organization and I think about our organization, I always you know, tend to think about how we work and how I explain what I'm think of myself standing in front of agency fund meeting or whatever else and say, this is how the foundation works. I don't think I would change the message very much. Um, you know, we, yeah, you're probably familiar, and some people who maybe listen to this podcast would be familiar that, you know, we have this chart out there that sort of shows three lines going up, and, and one of them sort of follows the gifts that have been given to the foundation over the last 99 years, and the next one, inflated value of those gifts, and then the market value of the foundation's assets. And you know, if you've been watching me talk about that for a long time, that those charts are not just a year or two long. I mean, we're talking about 10 and 15 and 20 year periods that we're tracing. 
So, yeah, this is a serious event uh, for sure. But the message I would be sending from sort of a professional Winnipeg Foundation message would be somebody's going to be showing that same chart three or four years from now, and it's going to show a real serious dip in the market value. But it's going to come back. And, and um, you know, there's no reason in our, in our, in our sort of our, our way of thinking about things not to think that that's the case. So um, the message I'd say in, in the crisis would be exactly what the health people are saying. The message I'd say professionally from the foundation is, you know, our policies are strong. We will get through this. It really speaks to the foresight, you know, as someone who's maybe a little bit impatient and young and kind of, you know, didn't really understand how things worked when I first started at the foundation. This is proof and this is the proof that it works, right? It's not, it's not, uh, it it, it speaks to the foresight is what I really, the point I'm trying to make is, is the policy is strong and that creates this, uh, this strong foundation. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be really interesting, Nolan. Um, it's going to be a lot of armchair, what they call armchair quarterbacks is what they call that. Um, people who are second guessing and I certainly don't want to get into that, that role. Um, but there's going to be incredible numbers of lessons to be learned here. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. um, who did what right and why did it go so differently in one part and another and, and, um, and, and, and all those kinds of things. So there'll be lots and lots of future analysis um, built around this that'll teach everybody how do we react in these circumstances? Because this is a this is history in the making for sure. This is history history in the making. Mm-hmm. Um, we you 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 know and others listening to this podcast would not know that I've been very interested in creating history scholarships for the last three or four years. Mm-hmm. We've created I think nine history scholarships, um, um, just to, to help uh, students who are in the master's level study Canadian history. And one of those history scholarships I was fortunate enough uh, to get in place um, was called the um, Martha Donovan Fund. And it is for students of history who want to study medical history, things that have happened in the, around the whole area of public health. <laughs> um, and that, uh, we, we awarded that history scholarship for the first time, $8,500, uh, to a student in, I think, January got a student at, uh, at it, the, the programs, a U of M, U of W combined program. So it's, you're not, the universities aren't competing, they're working together. So one of the students got this scholarship for the very first time, $8,500. And as I sit here today, you know, I wish I had three or four of those scholarships and now that the, that the fund was larger and had more capacity because there's probably going to be enough history research to be done uh, you know, comparative uh, reactions and just how different things, the documentation, the gathering the information and assembling it, um, comparing back to the pandemic of 1919 when it was so different. There was no social media. There were no podcasts, obviously, no TV reports in 1919. So you had other things happening. You know, the middle-class women were organizing themselves about how do you help their neighbors because the big pandemic was going on. It had totally different reactions and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it's just a really interesting time to think about some of the work that we do at the foundation and some of the work that I'm particularly personally interested in, these history scholarships, as I say. Um, and as I say, I got one of them in place, and I wish that fund had 
capacity to do two or three because I'd love to have more students studying this area for the next two or three years for sure. There's so much data and so much, you know, even comparing different countries too and how, how the curve mm -hmm. looks in every country. It's fascinating stuff and there's so much data out there. It's craziness. How yeah. are you, how are you going to adjust things? Like, do you think, what's your personal opinion on how things are going to change socially? Like, do you think, you know, these online meetings are going to be the norm a little bit? Are people going to be a little bit more scared of, you know, having a handshake meeting now? Because you never know what could, what could happen. Well, social distancing is going to be with us for at least until they get a vaccine, right? I mean, there's going to be a lot of caution. Um, we had a memo this morning on summer camps. And we're, we're asking ourselves, you know, we've, we're right in the process of approving a whole range of grants for summer camps, summer programming for kids. Well, you can imagine the challenge of having kids at camps, a big enough challenge, right? I mean, and, but now, now suddenly, you know, can you put them in cabins? Can they do a lot of the things that they used to do? Um, and are parents going to be comfortable? You know, parents were, um, it's a whole different generation. There was lots of jokes about sending kids to camp. Um, within the new generation, you know, where they go to do their campfire and they want to know if Skip the Dishes is bringing over the dinner or whatever, right? And, and I don't know, you got to actually boil the water and cook the dinner kind of thing. It's a, it's a, it's a totally different um, kind of generation in, in, in many respects. But having said that, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have profound changes on, on, on things that we have completely taken for granted for a long time. Um, I don't know when the vaccine comes along, like, you know, is this a, is this a once in a century kind of an event? Um, smarter people than you or me are going to figure out, you know, how, what are we dealing with here? Um, you know, it's um, different countries have had different success and, and can we lock it down more quickly? Did it have to be as bad as it, as it seems to be being? Um, so I think there's going to be profound changes for sure. It'll never, I can't imagine that the world will ever be the same. There's going to be massive adjustments um, in terms of, um, in terms of communication for sure, in terms of meetings, in terms of maybe public priorities, mm. um, you know, that, that sort of thing for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, at the end of our time together, we do a segment with all of our guests called the Just Because segment, where I ask the same seven questions to everybody, and we've gotten some good answers in the past. Are you willing to uh, give that a shot? Oh, sure. Okay. So the first question is, what is the first cause that you ever remember caring about? Well, that'd be UNICEF, for sure. Um, when I was in grade eight, um, we had to go along with these little... Um, baskets that, that basically people donated into and we were out there collecting them. And I clearly remember that. I mean, that was the first time when I really said, we got to go and get serious of money. And I, I've told the story before I got $80 on Halloween night. It was fabulous. I came back and everybody was counting their money. How had they done? And I did second best in the grade eight class. So I always felt, uh, why would I just stay on under 15 minutes? I might've been best. So close. But, uh, but I certainly remember that for sure. Crazy. Uh, so, I'm interested in your answer in this one. If money, politics, and logistics were no issue at all, um, and you could just snap your fingers and something would happen, what's the first thing you would do in support of your current cause? Well, I don't know if you have one specific cause. Maybe if it's the history scholarships. What's the first thing you would do in support of your cause if you could? I think um, if I had a current cause, it would be social, social equity um, across the community, and, and it would be um, sort of a, a guaranteed minimum income for every Canadian. And mm -hmm. we're very fortunate in, in uh, Winnipeg that 
Dr. Evelyn Forget, who's who's a prof at the University of Manitoba, has done a lot of research in the Dauphin experiment, or if you've ever heard of that or not. But there was an experiment done in, in Dauphin back in the 1970s when they gave everybody for a period of two or three years, everybody got a guaranteed income if you're below a certain level. Hmm. Um, and it had... Um, huge positive impacts and it was abandoned um, because of a whole, for a whole bunch of reasons. But um, there's lots of research on this. And, and I think when you, when you see what's happened here, when you got homeless people in this COVID situation and all the, all the things that government's scrambling to do, um, you know, in a, in a sense, what minimum income does is say, look at everybody's going to get a guaranteed X dollars a month or whatever else it is. And, um, you know, there was a candidate in the United States, I think his name is Andrew Yang, who was sort mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. promoting this idea. I think at one time he was calling it a freedom dividend or something like that, but every yeah. American was supposed to get $1,000 a month or something. But this idea of giving everybody sort of an equal base from which to work, um, that would be my, that would be my uh, cause today if I, if I had any power to, to do it, which I yeah. don't. Wow. But if I did, that's what, that's what I would do. It's, it's really interesting seeing the COVID, um, the ripple effects that it's having on social justice ideas, you yeah. know, and how people are like, wait a minute, you know, there, a lot of these problems that we're currently having could have been solved had we, you know, focused more on the equity side of things. And it's, 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 I'm glad that it's becoming more in the lexicon and, and people are talking more about that. Because yeah. it's pretty, I think uh, that's one of the things that I'm happy that this situation is happening because we're going to now care about each other a little bit more and understand that we need to kind of raise each other up so so this doesn't happen so question three what is the biggest misunderstanding or stigma about the cause well the biggest one is we can't afford it i mean that that's why people would say you can't have a minimum income i mean you think about it seniors have a sort of a base level or if you get pregnant for example in maternity leave we have base levels but the idea of giving that across all of society the biggest argument would be well we can't afford it and i think what we're seeing right now from the government is we absolutely can't afford it. Um, and, and uh, we just have to figure out how to get it done. It's a, it's an income distribution redistribution strategy for sure. So therefore there would be for the people who have more money, it definitely is a cost. I, you can't hide that. But, mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, the benefits coming back would be significant. The argument I think from people who would be against it would be, you know, why are we giving somebody a basic, amount of money for doing nothing and and what they saw in the dauphin experiment was that you know uh, people didn't just do nothing the result was that uh, people stayed in school longer um, that medical visits went down because mental health was better I and mean, there's all kinds of sort of positive things coming out of it more research would obviously need to be done but um, but there's, there's people who would say this can't be accomplished. But, you know, when you look back at 2008 and you look at what we did to bail out um, the private sector's mistakes, and then you uh, look at what we're doing right now for this pandemic, which is really nobody's mistake. It's just basically a, a situation we've got to deal with globally. But again, it shows governments can act. Um, it's just, it's just um, are they willing to figure out how? So that was the Dauf the Dauphin project in the seventies. You said, yeah, yeah. I, I remember hearing something about Ontario trying that maybe in the last couple of years for I don't know a year or so. But yeah, yeah. it's it's good. It's I'm glad that it's getting more into the mainstream conversation that universal basic income or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Question four: What is a time in your life where you had to pivot because a plan wasn't necessarily working out for you? 
<laughs> I suppose when you're in management, though, then you're pivoting all the time. That's what you, <laughs> you make your life jigging and jagging around trying to figure out how you're going to get through things. Professional um, pivoter, yeah, exactly. Always, always pivoting. But um, I guess in my life, uh, that, that the biggest, quote, pivot was when I left City Hall. I mean, you got to appreciate, you know, you know, when I was, um, I was a department head, and in, in, uh, in, in when I was 27 years old, I was CEO of Peel Region when I was 32, 33, came as chief commissioner of the city of Winnipeg when I was 41. So, you know, my career was very much in the municipal field, and, and um, you know, and, and I, have a, I have a very strong belief in the public sector. Um, probably some of my answers have already kind of indicated that. Um, I, I, I think there's a, a I, I fully respect the importance of obviously the private sector and the charitable sector, but I think the public sector is really important. And since the 1970s, well, maybe since Reagan and, you know, Margaret Thatcher in those days, uh, you know, public sector has become, you know, a, a less desirable place to be uh, and, and not maybe not held in as high regard as it was when I first started out. Um, so when I left City Hall and, and it was a pretty big pivot to, mm -hmm. to leave what I was doing, you know, when you think about City of Winnipeg had 10,000 employees and I came to the Winnipeg Foundation and there were six of us. <laughs> you know, that was a pretty big pivot. Um, so, you know, but it, uh, philosophically, when you think about sort of the work that the foundation does, sort of the, um, in sort of the community building, the values of the Winnipeg Foundation relative to the public sector values and those kinds of things, it's very much aligned. Um, so I would say that was a huge pivot for me, um, sort of saying, okay, I'm not going to pursue my municipal career any further. I was only 50 at the time, so big shift. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to see how this Winnipeg Foundation thing is going to work out. And, and um, you know, I've really obviously enjoyed it. I mean, the foundation has, you know, it's, it's really changed a lot, obviously, since I've been there. But, but I think the, um, it's been very gratifying to see work to work with donors who are absolutely committed to the community and work with agencies that are absolutely committed to the community and have everybody kind of on the same page about what we're going to do. Um, yeah, it's been a nice pivot. I, the dessert of my career, as I say. Yeah, that's the best part about this job is meeting people who care so much and they yeah. will just give their lives to make others' lives better. It's like, how can you not feel inspired coming to work every day? It's pretty sweet. That's right. So question five, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Well, um, I have lots of different advice <laughs> over the years. Probably a, maybe the best advice I was ever given was given to me um, at a dinner in Winnipeg um, one evening. Um, I was sitting beside Bob Chipman. And I was sort of bemoaning a decision that I had made a week earlier in the course of the conversation over dinner with one of those gala events where everybody's looking for a conversation and I was telling about something we were into. And he said to me, you know, um, don't ever get preoccupied about decisions you've already made. If the decision's been made, it's been made. Focus your attention on decisions you're about to make or going to be making. And, and, I, I, I've always remembered that conversation. It's kind of strange because I've gone to 
hundreds of banquets and, and had many conversations over meals. But, um, you know, his, his, he said to me, like, um, any, a decision you've already made is made. That's done. That's behind you. Focus on the future. And, and I think that was pretty darn good advice. Agreed. Yeah, for sure. So question six, what advice would you give your 10-year-old self if you could talk to him right now? Hmm. Well, I think um, probably, uh, again, there's lots of decisions made um, that you're that in my job at City Hall, uh, both as CEO in Peel Region, the CAO in Peel Region, and then as Chief Commissioner here in Winnipeg, and then subsequently um, at the foundation. And I think you can become, um, the, the decisions can get heightened in your own mind. You start to think the decisions that you're making are, are maybe more important than, than really they are really, they really are. You overemphasize them. Um, maybe not take yourself so seriously in some respects of when it comes to not career decisions. I think career decisions are really important, but I think, you know, the day-to-day decisions that we all make, um, cause we're going to make lots of decisions and some are going to be better than others or whatever. Um, but sometimes we over elevate, over elevate them. And, and that means you get preoccupied. And then when you're preoccupied about that, you're not thinking about other things in your life, which are maybe a lot more important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I would say um, that would be my advice to myself. Don't take those things as seriously as I, I don't know if I can ever change my personality, but that's what I'd be, <laughs> that's what I'd be trying to do. Yeah. I think uh, for most young men, every vic- you know, inexperience means every victory is the greatest thing in the world and every defeat is the mm-hmm. worst day of your life. Right. But if you yeah. kind of keep a little bit of balance and perspective, it's a, it's a good thing. Well, you need to cheat people like, oh, not, not everybody, but certainly there's sort of, as you say, check marks for achievement, you know, like I got this and I got that and you're trying to get things done. And, and, uh, if you're sort of, if you're sort of always looking for those little achievements as you go along and say, well, that I did well. And, you know, my family always joke about me, everything I do. And well, that was a B plus or an A or whatever else it is. I'm always greeting myself on these things. And I think that that's probably not a, a good strategy necessarily. Okay. Well, potentially. Well, last question, Rick, thank you for doing this. Uh, what do you want to be remembered for? Well, I think I'd like to be remembered as a good husband, um, a good father, um, a good colleague, a great grandfather. It would be great uh, if my grandkids remind me like that. But that's, that's, I don't know how you define good, but that's, well, however one defines it, that's probably how I'd like to be remembered. It'd be important to me. Well, you're a great boss, so thank you. It's not every day that someone gets to sit down and interview their boss for, you know, 45 (laughs) minutes or whatever it is. So thank you for taking the time. Uh, Thank you for everything you've done for the foundation and for the city. And and, uh, good luck in the next few weeks with everything, with your family and with the friends. And uh, yeah, thanks for doing the podcast. Uh, Please do it. Uh, Nolan, you're doing a great job for us. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you again to Rick Frost, CEO of the Winnipeg Foundation, for talking to us today. Like I said, it's pretty cool to be able to uh, interview your boss. And uh, I've been wanting to talk to Rick, honestly, for since we started this podcast, because he's a great man and uh, really has grown the foundation since he started here. And, you know, it's uh, he's been a great boss and it's pretty cool to uh, have that opportunity. So thanks again, Rick. Obviously, this was the first episode that was done from our homes, and because of the social distancing and the and the pandemic with COVID nineteen, this is 
probably going to be how the podcast is done from here on out. So uh, thank you for listening and uh, thank you for for being with us and for social distancing and all that great stuff. Uh, if you've got a potential guest that you think would be good for Because and Effect, please reach out and let us know. The best place is probably through the Winnipeg Foundation's social media channels at WPGFDN. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, or you can find me at Nolan Bicknell on social media as well. All music on the Because and Effect podcast is produced and composed by Trenton Burton, and you can hear more of his music at trentonburton.com. Because and Effect is a podcast from the Winnipeg Foundation. Thank you again for listening. Make sure you're taking care of yourselves and your family, your friends and your neighbors, anyone in need. We're all in this together. And remember, time you enjoy wasting is not wasted time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.